Uh, thanks for the readings, Seb. Uh, friends, do Lee, um, keep your Bibles open there. Uh, we're going to take a close look at the passage that Seb read for us from Acts. And I, I think I heard correctly when George said something along the lines of, um, too much mic is never enough. Something like that. And that's good news, actually, because I was thinking of doing a fairly short sermon today. Um, and so I had enough time to get down there, print out another 3,000 words. Um, it's not the best stuff. The best stuff tends to stay in, but it's more stuff. And when you want more, you might enjoy that. So um, let's see how we go. Our friends, Australia is changing. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the 2021 census has revealed increasing diversity in the religions Australians identified, reflecting continuing changes in our social attitudes and belief systems. And they went on. Christianity is the most common religion in Australia. That figure is continuing to decrease, with it sitting at just over 40%. And they further noted that the number of Australians who reported no religion... That's now sitting at just under 40%, with that figure rising steadily. I don't think that came as news to anyone. Australia is changing, it's rapidly changing. We might even say that Australia has changed. Because it actually wasn't that long ago that most Australians, regardless of religion... Most Australians, they knew a bit about the Bible. They knew that it begins with God and that this God is both a personal God in that He relates to us, but also a transcendent God who is simultaneously in control of all things. And the average Australian knew that the Bible tells of a God who made this world and that He made it good, but that when the fall happened, when sin entered the world, the the curse came. And they knew that the Bible had two testaments, that history moves in a straight line, that there's a difference between right and wrong, good and evil, truth and error, that Christmas is about Jesus' birth, that Easter is about His death, that the Bible speaks of a heaven and hell, that it issues an urgent call to repent and believe. Well, those days have passed and the stats are just now starting to reflect that. But what does that mean for our outreach to the world? Some in the church, they actually think this is good news. Let me explain that. What they're thinking is that now, finally, the official statistics are now starting to reflect what we already knew was happening or has happened. That not all who identified as Christian on the census were actually Bible-believing Christians. No, no, it's, it's just what they'd always put. You can sort of imagine a scene on census night as the person filling in calls out, you know, what religion are we again? Well, now, for whatever reason, those people are not doing that anymore. And so again, for some in the church, this is a relief. These figures are now just starting to reflect what we already knew, that we've got a big task ahead of us. And so we've got to get on with it. For others in the church, they don't view these results, which such optimism. They're discouraged. 
Not only does the task of telling the world about Jesus just seem so much bigger now, but they're also thinking that it's harder. Because as Western societies move further and further away from their Judeo-Christian heritage, well, it's not that Australians now just have this, this empty space just waiting to be filled with what the Bible says about who God is and what He's done for us. That's not what's happening. Uh, One author used this analogy. They're not like empty hard drives waiting for us to download our Christian files onto them. Rather, they have inevitably developed an array of alternate worldviews. They're hard drives full of many other files that collectively constitute various non-Christian frames of reference. The author goes on to talk about the result, continuing with the same sort of computer simile. He writes, they retain numerous files that are going to have to be erased or revised because as presently written, those files are going to clash formidably with Christian files. We should simply say that many believe that the task of converting Australia has become harder because Australians no longer share a common Christian worldview. Well, if you fall into that second camp, if you think that the task ahead of us now is actually that much harder than it used to be, and I wonder if that is actually most of us, Well, the good news is that our passage today, it's for us. It is a great encouragement for us. Now, why is that? Well, recall what happened last week. In chapter 16, verses 6 to 10, Paul had a vision, and in that message from God, Paul was told that now is the time, exactly the right time to take the gospel to the Macedonians. And so the gospel would be heard in Europe for the first time. You might recall how up until this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel go out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Syria, and then into Cyprus, Asia Minor. But it hadn't yet crossed into Europe. Well, in the passage last week, it happened. And it marked a huge turning point in world mission because as a mission field, Europe was different. Their culture their worldviews, the lens through which they looked out at the world. It was just so different to the people that we looked at so far. Specifically, it was much more Roman. Partly that's due to geography. We're moving closer to Rome. We're on the continent now. But even more significant is the history of the city of Philippi. Again, Seb introduced the city to us last week. It's where the events described in our passage today, it's where they all take place. But what is so special about Philippi? Well, while all the various cities spread out across the Roman Empire had a variety of different relationships with Rome, Philippi was special. It was designated to be a Roman free city, meaning that it answered directly to the emperor. So there's a tight link there already with Roman culture. And former Roman soldiers, they were encouraged, actively encouraged to retire there. 
its citizens were exempt from provincial taxes. It was a Roman city. Now, what did that mean for Paul and his companions as they arrived in this city looking to share the good news? Well, on one hand, it didn't mean much. As we heard last week, Jews did meet there. They gathered together and some Gentiles would actually meet with the Jews there too. And it was at one of those meetings that Lydia was converted. Well, actually, we've already seen that in Acts, haven't we? That God-fearing Greeks being converted. At this point, we're running about, what about the mission to the rest of that city? Those who don't know the Old Testament. Those who have no interest in the Old Testament. Those who are Roman through and through. One commentator has said this about Paul's arrival in Philippi. Paul and company were now in for a complete cross-cultural missionary experience. And so what did it mean for Paul to take the gospel to a very different cultural context? And what lessons can we learn from it today as we think about mission in our city and our world? Well, lesson one, the message matters. Look with me at verses 16 to 24, if you read of a fortune teller and her masters. We'll pick it up from verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. All right, we pause here for a moment. We're given two key pieces of information. The first is that Paul and his companions were once again heading to a place of prayer. Uh, That's actually where they met Lydia last week, wasn't it? And so presumably they were hoping to do the same thing again, to convert another at that meeting. There's something else I want to point out as well, and it comes right at the end there. It's when we're told that this slave had earned her owners a great deal of money. That's really important background for the dilemma that Paul is going to face very shortly. Actually, let's hear about that dilemma now from verse 17. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, at first glance, we might think that what's happening here, well, this is good for Paul's mission. That someone who was known for revealing truths, that she was telling everyone about Paul and his companions, about how they were servants of the Most High God, about how they were telling of the way to be saved, we might think this is good. Sounds like she's actually helping their mission. But let me suggest that's not the case. Actually, this lady was hindering their message. Why was that? Well, the first thing to note is how the spirit is described. Back in verse 16, it was said to be a spirit by which she predicted the future. Uh, The underlying Greek here, it's just two nouns, actually, just two words. Spirit and pythona. That's it. And actually, if you were a first century listener, you would know from those two words, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit here. We're talking about an evil spirit. And likewise, the reference to the Most High God, a a first century listener within their polytheistic and and pluralistic culture, they wouldn't have taken that phrase to be referring to the God of the Bible. It's actually how pagans speak when speaking of their own gods. That's just how generic a description Most High God was. 
And so actually this lady's not really helping their message. Actually, it would have misled the locals. They'd be thinking that Paul and co were just talking about the gods that the Romans already knew. And certainly that's a big problem when it comes to cross-cultural mission. Now, this is what Jim Harry is, a missionary in Africa, what he wrote back in 2009. He said, I recently asked an elder in a local church, which we were visiting in Western Kenya, how is people's understanding of God today had changed from what it was 100 years ago? That is before the coming of the missionaries. Not at all, was his confident response. The way our forefathers understood God is the way that we still understand him today. Nothing has changed. That's not great, is it? You can see the danger in not being crystal clear in cross-cultural mission. If your listeners don't know that the God that you're talking about is not the same God as the pagan God's that they've been serving for generations, if they think that, that you're just telling them about another aspect of the pagan gods that they already know, well, your mission will fail. And so you can see Paul's dilemma. Does he let the lady continue, knowing that his listeners would be misled and confused? Does he let the lady continue, knowing that his listeners may think that Paul is just singing the praises of the gods they already knew? Or does Paul cast out this spirit, knowing that that will cause trouble. Knowing that the owners who are making a lot of money, they will not be happy. So you feel the tension, right? You you feel the drama. And maybe you've been in a similar situation. After uh, telling a colleague that you go to church, they've said, what do you do on the week? And you say, well, one thing I did was go to church. They reply enthusiastically, hey, that's great. I, I hope that's working out for you. At that point, you've got a dilemma. Do you just go with them? You know, do you say, it's great, I I really enjoy it? Or do you push a bit harder? Do you correct a potential misunderstanding? Do you say, actually, that's not why I go to church. I don't go in order to feel good. I go because of what Jesus has done. I go because when you belong to Jesus, you belong to his people. That's why I go. It's a dilemma. Do you just go with the flow, keep everyone happy, or do you correct a potential misunderstanding? And in so doing, create a a potentially awkward situation. Well, what does Paul do from verse 18? Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. All right, so here's our first lesson in cross-cultural mission. For the sake of our non-Christian friends, we will clarify the truth of the gospel, even when it might create problems. Because the message matters. That's the first lesson, the message matters. And and so what happened? Well, the good news was that because Paul took action, it was actually clear to the locals that actually Paul was not proclaiming the gods they already knew. Indeed, when Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates, the accusation from verse 20 was that these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So the locals now knew that Paul was not just describing the Roman gods, 
And actually, they'd picked up that they weren't just proclaiming Judaism either. Because while they are described as Jews, their message was said to promote customs that were unlawful. But actually, at that point in time, in that city, Judaism, it was actually a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And so it seemed that Paul's tactic had worked. The locals now knew that Paul and Silas were talking about something new, something different, not the Roman gods and not just straight Judaism either, but rather the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though they were subsequently beaten up, thrown into jail, locked up in the inner cell, the most secure part of the prison, this was a good result because the message matters. Well, that brings us to our second lesson, which is that when it comes to cross-cultural mission, our manner matters. And so we'll turn to the jailer and to what is another dramatic account. And just a hint, when you're you're reading narrative, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the drama. Where's the action? Now, this jailer had been told to make sure that there was just no possibility that Paul and Silas could escape. No possibility of escape. But then verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison's doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. It's a very dramatic moment. For the jailer, this was a life and death situation because this jailer is not a high-ranking Roman official. Let's just be clear about that. In Roman society, he was a nobody. And if a prisoner escaped on his watch, regardless of the circumstances, he'd be put to death. There's very little doubt about that. That's why there in verse 27, seeing that prison doors were open and then thinking that the prisoners will have already fled, he gets ready to take his own life. For him, that was the better option. He didn't want to face a much more painful execution at the hands of others. Okay, what does Paul do? Another dilemma. Does he flee the prison? Does he get out of there? Run while he still can, not knowing what punishment awaits him tomorrow and the next day. Or does he think of the jailer? Does he spare a thought for the one that others would rarely think of? Well, verse 28, Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And so doing, Paul reveals that it's not just the message that matters, it's also our manner. Because notice what happens in choosing not to save himself, but instead to save the jailer. Paul invites a a beautiful conversation. See, the jailer knew that Paul and Silas had a new message. Maybe he knew the details of the case that had gone before the magistrates... Maybe listen to some of Paul and Silas' singing earlier that night. Whatever the case, even though the jailer had known the message, it was Paul's manner, it was Paul's profound kindness to him that prompts the jailer to find out more. And it led into that beautiful moment there in verse 29. This jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And he did. 
And it is a beautiful moment. Josh pointed it out, didn't he, in family time. A beautiful question with a beautiful answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What lesson do we take from this encounter? Well, again, while the previous taught us that the message matters, this teaches us that the manner matters. And I hope this resonates, right? Because part of the the beauty of the gospel is the beauty of a changed life. A life that looks out for others, a life that cares, a life that helps even when there is just no possibility of a favour being returned. Because it's easy, right? It's easy to scratch someone else's back when you know that they will scratch yours. It's a totally different thing to help another when there is just no possibility of reciprocation. But that is the beauty of the gospel. It changes people from a a focus on themselves to a focus on others, and especially the weak, especially the poor, especially the vulnerable. And so that's the second lesson in cross-cultural mission. Our manner reveals the authenticity of our message. Well, our third lesson, and it is our final lesson, don't be put off by what I said earlier. It's not going to be that long today. Third lesson, reputation matters. Let's pick it up from verse 35. Uh, What's happening there? Well, as daylight dawns, the order comes through from the magistrates that Paul and Silas, they are to be released. Why does this happen? Well, perhaps the magistrates had always intended to release them in the morning, that's possible. Perhaps the earthquake had made them reconsider their initial plans to hold him longer. I don't know, we're not told. But again, Paul faced a dilemma. Does he just leave or does he stay and and actually argue the point? What do I mean by that? Uh, Just reflect for a moment on what has happened here. It's important we do this. Paul and Silas were thrown in prison for doing good. That's actually what's happened. Casting out the evil spirit from that lady, that was an objectively good thing to do. The lady herself would have benefited immensely from that. This was a good that was done. And yet, because of the loss of income, because the lady's condition can no longer be exploited, Paul and Silas cop it in the neck. No trial, nothing. Accused of disturbing the peace and thrown into jail. And so an injustice has been committed, and so Paul has another dilemma. Does he suffer the injustice and just move on? He could do that, right? He could just leave. But where would that leave the reputation of those who were left behind? So Paul could flee the city. What about those who couldn't flee? The believers who will remain in Philippi after he's gone. Would the Christians there get a reputation for being troublemakers? Would this create a precedent that Christians could and should be beaten whenever an accusation is made? Well, it's with that concern for reputation that Paul seeks vindication in verse 37. Because when it comes to mission, 
reputation matters. Let's listen to what Paul says. Paul says to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. They threw us into prison and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. And actually the magistrates did that. Because with this news that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, well, the magistrates were now in a bind. It was against Roman law to beat a Roman citizen. Now, under the law, there were some exceptions, but even still, it could never be done without a full trial. And so the magistrates were in the wrong. Indeed, one of their key functions was to protect Roman citizens wherever they were in the empire. And so Paul asked the magistrates for a public declaration of innocence. That's what he's asking for when he told the magistrates to come to the prison and escort them out. This was a public declaration that Paul and Silas were innocent. And so their reputation was restored. But more importantly, and this is the big thing here, so was the reputation of the Christians in Philippi, the ones who would be left behind. And so that's the lesson when it comes to cross-cultural mission. Reputation matters. But what does that mean for us? Well, actually, we should care about our reputation. Uh, Not so much because we want to be thought well of ourselves, but actually because we want the Lord Jesus and His people to be thought well of. And specifically, when it comes to cross-cultural mission, reputation can have a dramatic impact. Which also means that today, I think we can look back and give thanks for the many things that Christians have done throughout the centuries. There's been missteps, right? No question about that. But don't fall into the trap of concessionalism. That's a made-up word. Uh, I didn't make it up, someone else made it up, I liked it. What it refers to is a practice that happens a bit today, actually. It's when people will tell you, right, they'll say Christians in the past, they were bad. They did this, they did this, they did this, whatever this might be. And concessionalism is when you just concede, regardless of whether you're familiar with the details or not. You just concede. I think we do this far too often. On issues such as slavery, human rights, healthcare, science, you know, modern education, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, We do this far too often. Now, again, that's not to say the Christians have never been at fault. That's not to say that at all. But actually, you're not doing anyone any favours. It's not going to help convert your friend by simply conceding every point when you don't know the details. Reputation matters. And actually, throughout the ages, God has done so many excellent things through His people that actually, we have so much that we can point back to and say, there, that's the beauty of the gospel in action. Well, I'll leave you to explore chapter 17 uh, by yourselves personally or in your growth groups during the week. We'll see what you guys choose to do. But let's finish by coming back to this question of worldview. As our country moves further and further away from its Judeo-Christian heritage, has our task become harder?
Has it become near impossible? Well, actually, worldview doesn't matter, actually. The jailer, what a great example. He didn't have a Jewish worldview. God changed him. And actually, God does this all the time. Uh, Not that long ago, I was reading about Dr. Holly Ordway. Uh, She published a pretty great book describing how God changed her. Uh, In it, she talks quite a bit about her previous worldview. At 31 years of age, she was an atheist college professor. And she actually loved thinking of herself that way. She says that she got a kick out of being an unbeliever. It was just fun to consider myself superior to the unenlightened, superstitious masses and to make snide comments about Christians. But after she started looking in to Christianity, God changed her. Uh, It wasn't easy for her to start exploring the Christian faith. She she said this, uh, easier by far to read only books by atheists that told me what I wanted to hear, that I was smarter and more intellectually honest and morally superior than the poor, deluded Christians. I'd build myself a fortress of atheism, secure against any attack by a rational faith. But she read, she thought, she explored. In the end, she was a reluctant convert. It proves the point, I hope. In the end, worldview, it doesn't matter. And actually, every conversion is a miracle. And God can change even the hardest of hearts. Let's pray for our outreach event next week. Heavenly Father, you can change even the hardest of hearts. Give us a confidence in the power of your word to change any heart. Give us a love of your gospel, a firm understanding of the beauty of the good news. Give us the opportunity to invite, to speak, to engage And through us, bring many to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.